Hi, my name is Jim Lewis. And my name is Chris Painter. Welcome to Inside Cyber Diplomacy. Between the two of us, I think we know almost everyone involved in cyber diplomacy. And the idea behind this is really to have frank conversations with those leaders in this area and bring that to the rest of the world, this new area of diplomacy, and talk to these leaders about what's going on. Our plan is that you'll hear things on this podcast that you're not going to hear anywhere else. Frank, not scripted, direct conversations. Hope you like it. I know we will. So please listen in. speaking with Ambassador Heli Termaklar, Estonia's first cyber diplomat and cyber ambassador, someone with immense experience and expertise at the UN, at the European Union, and of course, in cybersecurity in general. Maybe to start, you could just tell us about what you're doing on the cyber diplomacy front. You've got a very active educational program, not just for Estonia, but for the whole European Union. So what's up with what you're doing? First of all, I'm very glad to see uh, both of you, Chris and Jim, and and talk about uh, cyber diplomacy. Actually, before I start answering the question about the educational program, maybe I should make um, some historic remark about the word or concept of cyber diplomacy, because I guess it was first the European Union in 2015 that had the concept of cyber diplomacy in the official European Union Council conclusions coined for the first time. So I take some credit for it, since I was working for the uh, European External Action Service then, and I remember that we had to find a um, good pair of words to distinguish the issues of foreign and security policy from the rest of the cyber issues that we were dealing with as the European Mm -hmm. Union. And cyber diplomacy seemed to be the right concept for that, although nobody else was using this uh, at that time in 2015. On the educational program, we uh, have understood uh, as the process-based cyber diplomacy experts at some point that we need to educate uh, all European countries on the issues of how the norms apply in cyberspace, how the international law applies, what are the CBMs, and also the concepts of deterrence and attribution and and the others. So in 2018, the Estonian Foreign Ministry organized uh, some of the questionnaires uh, for some of the EU other member states in order to understand what kind of educational uh, needs are there um, among the ministries of foreign affairs in other member states. And in the During the summer 2019, we organized the first summer school where uh, you both participated. And interestingly, it drew a very uh, wide audience from all the European Union, NATO, and like-minded countries, uh, ministries of foreign affairs, also some ministries of defense. And there is clearly a need to uh, help the new generations of diplomats understand cyber issues. Sometimes they are just diplomats who have been already diplomats for some time, uh, but first time working on cyber issues. And I think we will continue this tradition. Uh, and despite the current lockdown, we can, um, we can do it also virtually, of, of course, in a, a more concise manner. Uh, last summer, we organized the global masterclass, which was more a snapshot of uh, currently popular or um, uh, relevant cyber issues like international law and capacity building. And this global cyber diplomacy masterclass uh, had 3,000 viewers from 68 countries. 
so the four hour uh, podcast was quite famous in, in all parts of the world, as I learned during the conferences with other uh, regions later on. So I think clearly there is a need for this kind of activity and we will continue doing this as Estonian Ministry of Foreign Affairs together with uh, our good partners and as uh, distinguished experts as, as you both. Um. Helly, let me uh, take this back a little bit because you said you were surprised at how much interest there was. There were a lot of new diplomats who were looking at this. When you came to the EU uh, to really coordinate their cyber diplomacy programs at the EAS, that was about 2012, as I recall. And at that point, I, my office had started in 2011, and we were, we were using the term cyber diplomacy, but not really anyone else was outside the U.S. There weren't many around. So can you talk a little bit about how you saw the evolution of this while you were at the EU and then going into your job a couple of years ago in Estonia? You know, EU started from other angle of cyber, which is more the, uh, as we call it in the EU, justice and home affairs or internal cyber issues, the cyber fight with cyber crime and also cyber resilience of the, of the cyber business. There is one thing everybody needs to understand about the European Union. We are the common union with common decision-making on certain issues. And the foreign policy is still intergovernment, which means that each member state of the European Union will have its own sovereign right to decide on foreign and security policy issues. So all the cybercrime issues and resilience issues we can do collectively as European Union, but foreign policy it's something what we would call the independent decision rights in all the capitals. So the common foreign and security policy is intergovernmental still. And uh, uh, it is obvious that all the EU legislations and regulations are well known in the field of diplomacy then, as they would be in the field of police cooperation or in the field of cyber experts who are in charge of critical infrastructure protection and uh, search and, and incident response. So. So the EU's first cyber strategy in 2013, I think, was the first instance where the foreign security policy issues and defense issues were first time in an official EU uh, document. So the 2013 cyber strategy uh, was an umbrella strategy that created uh, the vision, the common vision and common approach for cyber issues for, for the whole European Union, including the foreign policy. At that time, of course, we did not have even the permanent cyber working group in Brussels. Uh, we have working groups for all very different issues there. But the cyber working group was uh, missing at that time. So we had uh, created uh, something which we called the Friends for Presidency on Cyber Issues, which was then the EU presidency run group. And presidency changes every six months. And well, it's uh, now a bit of uh, anecdotic history, but each time the new presidency came in who was running this group, and this group is supposed then to coordinate things amongst all the 28 then member states. Uh, every six months when the new presidency came in, so we had um, a very serious meeting with them, and then we started to explain all the time, all over again, you know, what is the cyber diplomacy, how uh, foreign policy and security policy issues in cyber are happening, because this was not obvious. We don't have EU key, as we would call them, in the diplomacy issues. We would have them in police cooperation, we would have them in the resilience or internal market side, or, but um, foreign policy is sovereign. So each capital needs to know how they decide on foreign policy decisions themselves. And therefore, it, it wasn't so obvious that the cyber diplomacy angle was there always when we discussed cyber issues at the EU table, because it depended on the country and on its own preparation and on its own expertise, whether they have been uh, 
approaching cyber issues from the foreign policy angle or rather from the internal angle. And most of the EU countries were approaching them from either the law enforcement angle or from the resilience angle. And uh, only few countries at that time had all the three angles in place. Where would you put the European Union now? How, how much progress has there been made? You're not there anymore, so that's a, a drawback for them. But where would you put the, the EU? Have you converted them? I think uh, the fact that I'm not there anymore is very good because I can do new things. Uh, and there is a team in place which is very competent and, and I have created competence there in Brussels which stays and has not evaporated after I left. So I think uh, the relevance of cyber diplomacy is well known for everybody now. Uh, where we are now, I think we are now in um, in a good place. Almost maybe half of all the European countries have a specific either office or at least one post in the foreign ministries dealing with cyber diplomacy only. Mm. So, uh, and some of them, of course, have a large office and cyber ambassador. I think this trend is growing. In few countries, of course, we still need to have a specific role in the foreign ministry for this, but. I think we have made really great progress in, I would say, last maybe three, four years. And of course, the cyber diplomacy toolbox, which was uh, the, the famous EU policy, which now allowed yeah. us to apply sanctions. This has also helped because this was a very operational concept. Because when you talk about the theoretical application of 11 norms of TT and so on, well, all the EU countries follow international law anyway. We apply all these norms anyway. So for us, it's a bit like if country has no cyber interest or is not really foreign policy is not so much intertwined with cyber issues then something practical like the cyber diplomacy toolbox that led to certain sanctions i think was also a very good learning curve for majority of the eu ministries of foreign affairs and on the 30th of july we finally actually applied those sanctions first time i mean first of all heli i always love the phrase friends of the presidency because uh Friends was always in quote. As good friends always are, there was some dissension in that group. That's just the way things are. So, uh, but it always was good to move policy along once you guys created that. But I want to talk a little bit about that cyber toolkit for a second because, you know, I for one was skeptical. I was I thought it was a great move to to actually come up with that cyber toolkit. And I knew that took a long time for you guys to negotiate that, and you were really shepherding a lot of that. But I was, you know, I wasn't sure it'd ever be used. That you ever be you ever be able to get complete agreement among the EU states to take action. And you did. And I think that was a, a real strong mm -hmm. message. So I don't know if you want to talk a little bit more about that. You know, I think that skepticism apparently was unwarranted because you guys did use it. It showed more of a political commitment to this and not just a cyber people commitment. So just if you want to expand a little on that. This has been a really um, positive for the whole European Union that we were able finally to do it. As you very quickly pointed out, it became much more political after the OPCW case. Mm -hmm. Then uh, the European Union decided to have two specific sanction regimes uh, because we had all the sanction regimes for all other issues before. But after the OPCW attempted hack uh, related to what happened in Salisbury, you remember that chain of events, the European Union then um, adopted two specific decisions to have the chemical or CBRN sanctions regime and, uh, and also the cyber sanctions regime as a result of this uh, real life event. And in 2018, when we did um, coordinated uh, attribution of uh, the cyber uh, activities of certain groups, then this uh, uh, OPCW attempted hack also was something that was visible for the political decision makers. And so the cyber sanctions regime was easier to justify because, you know, after not, <coughs> not Petya and WannaCry, 
uh, we, the cyber people, run around in Brussels and try to explain, you know, so many billions of economic loss, uh, the maritime sector has a huge hit and so on. But since nobody has died, and since it's not visible what happened to the economy, so it's not, it wasn't the obvious uh, to explain to the decision makers that, well, this was really um, something that uh, warranted some action from on behalf of the EU. So because the cyber diplomacy toolbox was already in the EU bureaucratic uh, machinery by, by WannaCry and NotPetya, but we were not able to act on it because it wasn't, I think the time was not right. And the majority of the member states uh, still did not really have that kind of domestic awareness uh, in their own capitals uh, that cyber attacks can be serious and, and you have real world results as uh, uh, an impact of cyber attacks. And, and, and the step further would be that EU would be able to react. And finally, I think in, in 2020, now we were able to have it all together and uh, collect all the evidence. And in 2019, we adopted the specific cyber sanctions regime. That was then the step further from the cyber diplomacy toolbox, which was in the EU machinery already since 2017. But we were not able to act on it until this uh, sanctions regime was adopted in 2019. Uh, and the sanctions itself now were applied into 2020. So. It was a great first start, and we know that the Germans have promised already the, the second set of sanctions after the Bundestag hack, so, or they have investigated them. You mentioned um, norms, CBMs, and international law, and in some ways each of them deserves a separate discussion. But maybe you could tell us, to the extent you can, where uh, where you think we are in the UN processes and when you talk about it, maybe you could discuss whether we actually need any new norms. I, I kind of feel like the 11 we have from 2015 are adequate, but, you know, people have put proposals on the table. I think uh, before we think about additional norms, we have to apply those 11 norms. And what the current GT is doing is that we are uh, creating the second, like a new layer of understanding of the existing norms and all these, uh, not all these, but some of these proposals for um, what kind of critical infrastructure, for instance, should be protected, can go to a generic norm of critical infrastructure protection. So we actually have found even a way to accommodate the ideas for the new norms under their already existing norms as a sub layer or sub category. And I don't think there is this uh, creating new norms is, at least in the GG, is not such a um, focus right now, because we have already created certain understanding that most of those new norms would be going under the headlines of the old norms. But the 2015 norms, they were generic enough, I think, you really can uh, stretch them and uh, all the different sectors of critical infrastructure, which has been the majority of the discussion on the new norms like this public core and uh, the supranational infrastructures, they can go uh, under the existing norm of, of the critical infrastructure protection because uh, it is already there. The question is not whether we need new norms, but I think the question rather is how we implement those norms and what is the mechanism there to implement those norms. And we just had open-ended working group discussions last week and uh, there is a new proposal on the table. Maybe you have heard that already to have a program of action mechanism to implement the existing first committee cyber stability framework, as we call it. Uh, let's see what, what uh, will be the um, reaction from majority of the UN members on that. But I think uh, after the last week's discussions, uh, I'm quite optimistic that this uh, new program of action for advancing responsible state behavior in cyberspace 
big attraction and will also create some tangible capacity building mechanisms, peer learning mechanisms for um, those countries who, who want to also study more how to uh, implement the existing norms and also to have the discussions continue under a different frame, not two parallel working groups like we have now. Under the first committee, uh, of course, majority of those discussions uh, have taken place so far in the GG. And now the Open Ended Working Group had just two physical meetings before pandemic hit us. So in a way, we are a bit on a hold right now in the first committee because uh, both groups are, are continuing virtually. And um, virtual, of course, mode of working is, is better than nothing, but uh, we can observe that not all countries are there. But the postponement of the um, adoption of the, the res uh, reports has been considered by the, by the UN staff, and uh, that might be uh, useful for both um, processes to, at some point, have also um, physical meetings again before we close the chapters there. Mm -hmm. Given what's going on geopolitically and a lot of the tensions around the world, not just in cyber, but larger, are you optimistic that the OEWG and the GG are actually going to be able to reach some consensus that moves the ball along, or are you more pessimistic or worried at this point? I think the consensus is possible. We have, uh, just uh, scientifically speaking, we have enough common ground on substance in, the, in both of the groups. But as you have, have suggested, there are those geopolitical developments that might come uh, into play. And uh, we don't know how then this uh, will be uh, reflecting on our cyber work. So there, there is, from the point of view of diplomats, we can foresee the substance there, uh, which will provide consensus for the both groups. But of course, substance is one side of the coin and the other political will. And I think it's now more about the political will, what we talk about. It's very hard to predict the political will. A lot of the attention has been on the application of international law. And in 2017, which I think you were involved in, the international law was one of the issues that led to the failure to get consensus. Um, tell us what you think the role of some endorsement, further endorsement of international law would look like. What's the diplomacy of it, not just within Europe and the U.S., but with the other major powers that we've been talking about? How do you see international law working? Well, last week at the Open Ended Working Group, we were discussing international law for three days. And I think there are clearly some points of consensus, like peaceful resolution of conflicts and some other UN Charter principles are there, which we can find consensus on. One of the contentious issues is international material law. I, I, well, as a diplomat, you know, you always find the wording, which can be a consensus wording for, for both sides. But maybe this might be uh, one of those more complex discussions then. In the GG, as you know, we have already the, in the mandate, instead of having the substantive part in the report or international law, we will have annexes. And those annexes will be reflecting the different countries' views, how they see international law applying. And this is still holding that in the GG process, we will uh, rather work on annexes. Uh, at least there has been no discussion to change the mandate. The Open Edit Working Group certainly has quite substantive part on international law, like a few paragraphs there, which look like consensus-driven texts. And we hope that this, of course, these reports, I think the report is now uh, called uh, pre-draft number two, or so it's not uh, called the official draft yet, yet, but it is a work in progress. 
but I would I would think after the last week's interventions, we do not see a lot of um, uh, consensus, except for a few countries that are uh, questioning the existing law. Majority of the countries are not questioning the application of the existing law, and there are of course some some nations that would call for some. Um, new legal instrument in cyber and of course we know that the existing law should be applied and um, at least um, from Estonian point of view we do not see the basis or need for for any new instrument until we haven't really uh, sufficiently applied the existing law which is not the case uh, by now so we really need to do some more work applying existing law. As you know, there's been a lot of people knocking on the door, essentially, of the UN, uh, other stakeholders, industry stakeholders, NGOs, uh, civil society, and others who want to be more part of these discussions. And the UN's done a little bit with uh, one of the meetings that we have been in the I think there's a feeling that there needs to be more. What's your feeling on that? And, and how would you look to involve those other stakeholders? Understanding a lot of this is state-to-state issues. I can see the other stakeholders' interest is growing because the private sector especially finds these intergovernmental discussions uh, not quite efficient, which might be also true. Compared to the private sector speed, the UN speed is very different. But at the same time, the first committee used to be a very state-centric committee. This is called disarmament committee. We can have philosophical discussion why we have cyber issues under the first committee, which is disarmament committee. But this is exactly to regulate the state behavior. And majority of the governments in the world would still have a view that state behavior, issues of international security, peace and war are in the hands of states, not the private actors. And it might create frustration amongst the other stakeholders. And of course, in the physical meetings, we have some of the NGOs and uh, some of the stakeholders also outside of the government. But this is rather an exception than the norm under the first committee dealings. Of course, we could think uh, maybe there should be another venue where we discuss also all sorts of other issues of cyber uh, with the governments and with the private sector. And I think this is something what the French tried to do with the Paris call, where they invited both the governments and the private entities to discuss the cyber issues. Also, the um, UN Secretary General High Level Panel has released the report and now the roadmap, I think also strives to have some discussions on the digitalization issues also outside of the government with the broader multi-stakeholder groups. So there are the venues where the other players are invited, but the first committee usually traditionally really is for the government. Just to go back to the, our first question on your diplomacy course, your cyber diplomacy course, you, know, you moved from you know your time at NATO, your time in Estonia, running a lot of the cyber coordination to the, the external action service. And now you've been for the past couple of years, the chief cyber diplomat of Estonia. When you talk to other folks, so Estonia is a little different. Estonia really has seized on these issues for a long time, but many other countries haven't. So when you talk to your counterparts, especially new ones in other countries, not just in the EU, but around the world, what advice do you give them to try to get the attention of the political leadership in their country. So it's not just this issue that people don't care about. What, what, is it, what is it that they can do to raise the level of this in priority? Of course, the first task for them is to try to explain the issues of cyber diplomacy because it's not uh, almost obvious for the decision makers from other sources, from media and so on, that uh, foreign policy issues are very much there. And then maybe give some examples how cyber diplomacy might be helpful also for a country to pay attention. Uh, actually, we have had some uh, courses already or bilateral um, 
consultations with countries in Latin America, Africa and other, other parts of the world where we were exactly asked to explain what are those first three or five steps to set up the cyber diplomacy unit or competence in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. The more technical side of the government is asking for this because they see now all these negotiations in the UN, they see the um, activities of deterrence, collective or coordinated attribution, and they start wondering why their own government has not been part of those discussions. Mm. I have had interesting conversations with the directors of National Assert from some of the developing nations who are, mm. who are now asking their own Ministry of, of Foreign Affairs to set up this capacity because they need this as well as technical um, part of the government. They also need to reach out to other, other parts of the world. And um, the second issue might be that if there is already awareness, but you are entering a very large system with traditional diplomacy, there, the major issue is mainstreaming. Mainstreaming is difficult and tiresome uh, since you have to really um, make sure that all your embassies understand this also. And you have to explain that um, a bit complex area in uh, human languages. And I, I would like to always make some examples, even from my own Estonian system, where I have been now mainstreaming that for two years. And still I have some people coming to me from my own Estonian system telling me that Manual is regulating the cyber criminal issues. No, that's not true. You know? It's the Budapest Convention, which is for crime. And the Tallinn Manual is an academic book uh, for state behavior guidance. So I think this this is just human. The diplomats usually are dealing with you know hundreds of issues and their attention span is 10 minutes and, and you the higher you get the more you know loaded you are with all sorts of different issues. So how, how to um, make sure that the diplomats would understand what we talk about is uh, just to train them. So I have had, I don't know, almost 10 trainings for our diplomats, uh, different diplomats, uh, political diplomats, ambassadors. Uh, so we do the trainings very regularly in order to mainstream the issues of cyber diplomacy for every uh, part of our system. At least no one's asking you to fix their computers. So you're one of the key figures in advancing cyber diplomacy around the world, not just in Europe. And how did you get into this? How did you, I mean, you aren't a, you aren't a technical person. What, what led you to consider cybersecurity as, a, as the issue that you are now so central to? So you know the story. So I have had this um, interesting part of my life and uh, I was um, put into the working group of the 2007 Estonian cyber attacks as uh, the only non-technical person. Since I had just come out from maternity leave, I didn't have a lot of negotiation room with my bosses at the Ministry of Defense, so I had to take this job. And after two weeks or so, I, I suddenly I was appointed to be ahead of this group that developed the Estonian national cybersecurity strategy after the 2007 attack. And then um, after another two weeks, I understood that, you know, the issues are already different, but it's the same, you know, strategic national security issues that I have been dealing for a long time before that. So, of course, you had to learn some new jargon and you had to have uh, some technical advice on the side. But in the end, it doesn't require the technical person to be the cyber leader because just uh, uh, understanding uh, how cyberspace works is necessary, yes. But essentially, the strategic issues of national security, how you defend your country, how you defend the critical infrastructure, this is quite transferable skill, the strategic thinking, understanding both the domestic side of cybersecurity and also what could be done internationally. And uh, in the first Estonian cyber strategy in 2008, 
we already had a chapter like international cooperation and this chapter was calling to raise the cyber issues in the EU, in NATO, in OSCE, in the UN and all large international organizations. And actually that what Estonia did uh, quite tirelessly. And now they are, I, I, I would like to say so that in all major organizations, cyber uh, is now almost mainstream. There are cyber groups, working groups, there are cyber policies, there are cyber strategies. So uh, EU is now talking about the third cyber strategy soon. So we are already now in a stage where understanding of cyber issues is really maturing globally. What advice would you give to people who are new to the field? What would you tell them? As a diplomat, uh, they have to deal with the diplomatic side of the cyber issues. So they have to understand that dealing with the diplomatic side of cyber issues is a bit similar. Like when you are, for instance, uh, discussing the nuclear um, non-proliferation regime. So uh, in order to be a diplomat and discussing nuclear non-proliferation regime, you don't have to be a, a nuclear physicist. So you, you, you will be still the diplomat. So it's about negotiation. It's about understanding the basics of international law. It's about understanding the um, uh, global agreement on what kind of uh, norms of state behavior apply. And there are regional policies for Europeans. We have lots of regional policies. We have OSCE, we have the EU, we have the Council of Europe, we have NATO. So then, of course, all the cyber diplomats in, on our continent are very busy. They have to understand the policies of all these different uh, organizations and also provide their national input for those policies. So it's a pretty, pretty uh, busy here in Europe. But uh, there are other regions in the world where maybe the regional organizations have just started. And then the focus, of course, of those regions might be more on the UN groups. And I, I must say that some of those regional groups like ASEAN and African Union and OAS, they could be very useful in capacity building and, and helping those other uh, nations in the region that uh, need capacity building. So, and, and we have seen this kind of very useful dynamic in ASEAN already where Singapore and the others are providing capacity for um, the other nations to well, you can you can also say in Estonia that it's good for your career path because uh, the former uh, cyber person in Estonia became your foreign minister, right? <laughs> you mentioned capacity building, and I know your diplomacy course is a core part of that, but how important do you think that is to the overall progress in this area? It's something that came up very frequently in the OEWG meetings, for instance, by yeah. lots of different countries. I think this is uh, really important, and it is also important that they only don't speak about this, but also have a very clear understanding of what could be done. There is certainly a large number of nations out there that are asking for uh, assistance in this field, and the question is how we are coordinating this assistance, which already exists, and how we maybe will tailor and decide the new assistance programs uh, in a way that it will be helpful for those nations. So I think um, the more activities we have of first understanding what are the needs and requirements of those nations who need assistance. And secondly, also to bring together the um, different um, donors. And I think the uh, Christus is your organization and the GFC, uh, She's doing a global forum of uh, cyber expertise, which uh, the Dutch government has set up uh, some years ago already. And this, this is very helpful uh, in this context. Also in Estonia, we are trying to coordinate a bit what happens in the European Union there. And there is the EU CyberNet initiative that brings together the cyber experts from European countries that could be then dispatched outside of Europe. So, Because we don't have uh, so far this kind of pool of experts in Europe yet ourselves. 
So all our cyber programs are put together quite hastily uh, and as a European Union you need to have a bit more comprehensive understanding so um, how you spend the taxpayers money and then how you exactly implement those programs and so we try to do that and help to do our due diligence there. Yeah. Since you started in uh, 2007 this has gone from being a, a niche issue to a central issue and there's hundreds of uh, researchers now looking at cybersecurity. What do you find useful when it comes to outside input whether it's from the the companies or from academic? Uh, I think right now it would be um, maybe good to compare the um, cyber stability framework or the nascent uh, cyber diplomacy regime or however we call it that has now played out in the first committee with other fields when we talk about international security. How the other fields have uh, uh, matured in this well, hmm. when there was a new technology. And you you mean like nuclear missiles or CBW or something? Yeah, the nuclear analogy is not a good analogy because uh, in yeah. the case of nuclear, you had you had a couple of countries that had those nuclear weapons and you could even count those weapons. So in cyber, you, you cannot have that kind of clear overview. Yeah. That's why you cannot have a treaty because you can never verify, uh, start and verify all the laptops in the world, which is not nonsense so, and um, uh, and and the question might be rather that I think this program of action that uh, the French have put uh, at the table in UN is a good maybe analogy since this it's the analogy is taken from small arms I think cyber as a dual use is everywhere you have to have some different regime in order to have the stability current framework in place and, and certain ramifications for the state behavior so I think this kind of analogy searching might be useful and also what I see sometimes uh, in the academic work is that the research is very superficial my knowledge I'm sorry it's very deep because I have been, <laughs> have been in this field for 10 years but uh, I understand also the young researchers who do not have a lot of uh, original material because people like me we are still very active uh, and we do not write books about how we all did it you know like in nuclear war and so on uh, but I think I would encourage the researchers to go to the source and ask the practitioners and not come up with theoretical constructions that you have read from some other papers because quite often I, I find very interesting claims in the academic literature which I know which is not true so and, and I, I would encourage to go to source and, and make authentic research. Where do you see this all going? This field is relatively new I mean really less than 10 mm -hmm. years point, as, as you said. Where do you see cyber diplomacy and what goals do you think might have reached just you know five years from now and part of that I think is how we deal with accountability in cyberspace as we're writing all these rules and norms and other things, it's clear a lot of people are still violating them. So how, how can we have this more stable environment that we're pushing for, which, and how does diplomacy contribute to that? So looking forward, what do you want to say? I think that diplomacy also uh, has to turn um, to more difficult questions now, like accountability and attribution. So this is one part, and uh, we are already quite progressed in some parts uh, there. And I think in Northern Europe, um, majority of the countries have the nationals attribution guidelines and we are, have understanding of how we actually coordinate the activities that lead to the net attribution. Because there should be a moment where all the aggressors and the perpetrators should also understand that we will have consequences here. All the activities that we can do at the EU level or global level to um, bring about more responsible state behavior, uh, sanctions has been a, 
subject of our podcast today, uh, those are very relevant because in cyberspace you do not have uh, the menu there, which you have in, uh, in case of the regional conflict. So the menu is still uh, a bit shorter to respond to certain activity in cyberspace. So you have certain possibilities to respond, but uh, they are not maybe so mainstream yet. Mm, the discussion about attribution seems to be still difficult, even amongst the like-minded countries. So we, we really need to raise that kind of awareness that if a country, A and B, uh, is deciding to do a cyber operation or cyber activity, significant consequences, this has to have also a response. And, uh, and the question, of course, for us is what kind of response and how we coordinate this response? Should it be collective? Should, should there be this coalition response? And I think the uh, UN, UN General Assembly last year had a side event where um, 20 plus countries signed to a responsible state behavior framework. And, and this is possibly the way forward that we also have a very clear understanding how to respond to malicious cyber activity. That's a crucial point. And I think it, it's interesting because it, creates a little bit of tension with both the UN system and with NATO, in that if you look at the countries that signed up, many of them are members of NATO, but not all. And it's certainly not something that you'll see endorsed by the UN anytime soon, because we know there's a couple great powers and and others who would oppose it. So what do you think the way forward is on pushing consequences? How do we make progress on identifying responses to, because I think you you said earlier, and I think we all agree, the only way you get the norms defined and observed is if there are consequences. But we haven't defined the consequences. And since the international community will not be doing it, do we need a special group? I think we have to start somewhere. And the like-minded coalition or a special group, of course, is a good start. Because uh, it cannot be one country, but it has to be many. The most difficult part, as you also pointed out, would be to have a proportionate uh, response and the menu has to allow then very different response options. Because sometimes when we can detect that the malicious cyber activity came from territory X, Y and Z, it might be that uh, territory X and Y had no one knowing of uh, malicious cyber activity being carried out from the territory. So then you have to have some sort of a menu that you ask the country, did you really do it? Or was this just happening from your territory? Because due to the specifics of the cyberspace, this can also be the case that in, uh, some of the uh, nations that have less visibility on their own cyberspace and, and have not had the kind of uh, technological um, advancements yet, so they might also not know uh, what the territory would be used for. And, and this is what I feel in the UN. When we talk about about the deterrence consequences and so on, this is not um, going well with majority of those countries or developing nations that still feel that they need to grow their own capacity. So I think at the UN level, that might be a bit too early to discuss. But it should, of course, at some point go there. But um, then uh, there is uh, also the mid-level, you know, the high-end and mid-level group of countries that maybe are mature enough to discuss these issues and, and I think they should start there. And then the consequences menu is, is a very tricky part. So because you can have all sorts of responses from diplomatic to political to economic sanctions to other responses, uh, countermeasures. So 
it takes time to also clarify the thinking between those like-minded countries. So, but we have to start somewhere, and I think this uh, like-minded coalition is, is a good start. So, so Helly, just one uh, further on that. Um, you know, Singapore Cyber Week is one of the big international gatherings, virtual this year. You know, focused on ASEAN, but has lots of other people involved too. And David Ko in the past, uh, who's been the head of the Singapore Cyber Agency, has talked about smaller countries being ants and giant elephants stamping around them. Um, so getting those other countries, those smaller countries, involved in this issue of consequences, of deterrence, of uh, making sure that you have larger stability, that's not easy because they don't want to be trapped in the middle of this. Is there any advice you'd give on, on how to do that? I think it's useful for smaller countries to make sure that they are part of the activities that try to implement the current tools-based international order. Because as our uh, first president of the re-independence, Lennart Meri said, international law is the best friend of a small state because you don't have many other guarantees out there. But the international law has been so far the guarantee of smaller countries. And everything we do in terms of consequences and in terms of bonding to malicious cyber activity is within the confines of the existing international law. And uh, all the rules-based thinking type of uh, activities are uh, strengthening this idea that there should be rules also of international law applying in cyberspace. I think this is something that all small states specifically will possibly support because uh, this will make cyberspace and activities in cyberspace much more predictable, if you know at least, what is allowed and what is not allowed. And, and therefore, the discussions about uh, let's you know discuss a new treaty in the UN, and let's not uh, think that the existing law applies. This is a bit dangerous, especially for those smaller and not so advanced advanced countries, because then you will prolong the uncertainty period for another 20, 30 years. When you know, if there will be this discussion, and, and there are countries that say international law does not apply, so we need a new law. So until you have a new law, maybe it happens, not in our lifetime, maybe it never happens, then there will be the uncertainty. And this should stop. So we should have certainty that existing international law and all of it applies in cyberspace too. Well, Heli, we could clearly keep talking to you for another hour, but we've taken far too much of your time. This has been fabulous and um, this has been great. Are there any final things you'd want to say? What I would like to say is that if those uh, smaller nations that are out there and they maybe are hesitant um, about the issues of how they should vote in the UN and uh, what they should do, I think I would encourage them to reach out to um, other small states like Estonia and ask the advice and we are there to help if necessary because we have been there, we have been attacked, we know what it is. We're so grateful that you did this because you are truly an expert. Thank you. Thank you, Heli.